realism had uh, developed, as I said, in France uh, with Courbet. This is Courbet's Stone Breakers, right? And one of realism's ideas, uh, a couple, I guess, that are important for us here, are that, um, for one thing, you don't depict his historical scenes, right? You don't depict supernatural events. Courbet was famous for having said, show me an angel and I'll paint you one. Um, I get a kind of preposterous remark, but it lives on pretty well, even in the English uh, uh, too. And so uh, Courbet, uh, Courbet's scenes are often of the lower classes. They're of these very immediate, direct subjects, right? Um, these guys are just, again, laborers breaking uh, stones here. And the surface of this canvas is also, it's, it's very hard to foresee in reproduction like this, built up with a kind of uh, amazing impasto, this, uh, surface uh, intensity. If you get a chance to go to the Norton Simon Museum, you can see a good Courbet landscape over So there's an actual material reality. So again, one of those contrasts that we're talking about um, of the uh, actual material of the canvas with uh, in relationship to the subject, right? So realism meaning a couple of those things, right? Earth and reality of the painting and the So Tanner's early work, um, this is an early painting by him. He was painting what you would call genre scene meaning scenes of everyday life. And people were very excited about this, uh, especially uh, if you think about what was happening in the Reconstruction, right, uh, in the South in this period. People felt like, finally, we have an African-American artist who's going to paint African-American life, right, um, with this kind of mastery and, be, and sort of you know, represent um, the stories of, the, of this group uh, in a way that's compelling and new. Um, and there was probably a lot of expectation that Tanner would continue in this vein, but by the uh, 1890s, late 1890s, we find him painting increasingly biblical scenes, um, kind of rejecting those genre scenes. And this is kind of a weird painting, if, if we pause for a moment to, to think about what he's trying to do here, right? So it's an Annunciation. You guys have probably seen a hundred Annunciations in your life. What's weird about this one? We're a small group. We can talk. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's kind of a Gabriel there, right? He's, so you guys understand what's happening here a little bit. It's hard to see. On the left-hand side, there's a sort of pillar or column of light, which is, I mean, it, it's special effects. <laughs> Gary, Gary's here. He teaches uh, in the cinema media arts here at our school. Yeah, it's a, it's a special, it's a sort of amazing kind of visualization of an angel without actually having to paint an angel, right? The angel is showing up. And so in a weird way, it's this kind of literal take on it, right? Like, okay, an angel, instead of having a robe and wings, like the, after the Greek fashion, is light, right? And not only, right, does, does uh, Tanner give you that conceit, but then carries it out through the rest of the painting. Because the angel is the light source for the rest of the painting, giving this kind of color saturation, this warm light to the whole thing. Right? Again, this is, this is a, a, an amazing leap for him to, uh, to do this. There's very little precedent for this sort of thing. But he's attempting, I think, right, in, in this to, to marry that, that realist approach 
verity, painting only what's around you, right, with a supernatural moment, right? How do you how do you do both of those things? I mean, yeah, they probably have to paint an angel that has, you know, like a very real linen cloth, or you refute that entirely and go this direction. And then, of course, um, the, the realism of the scene is carried out further by all of the fabric and everything else happening here, and by, again, a very thick, direct application of paint. Um, by the way, these, uh, all these fabrics are adding to the realism because he got them in the Holy Land, right? So he actually went there, did his research, uh, did some paintings in the Holy Land. This is the Wailing Wall, you'll probably recognize. This is also from 1898. And he brings back all these textiles, right, from the, uh, from the actual scene of the crime, right, where, where it happened, and puts it in these paintings. But you can see, of course, I mean, while the painting has, um, is stirring on one, I mean, uh, again, quite, qu quite fantastic on one level, that, that this project is going to create certain difficulties for him. Um, that his commitment to realism and his commitment to telling the, these stories and this historical, and these things he can't observe, right, um, is going to be a drama that, that gets played out of the work. And again, very often that, that's, that's what we find is going to make work interesting, isn't it? Um, is trying, uh, is that search to try to reconcile these things. So, as Tanner would go along, he would, would also begin to receive influence from, not only from the realists, but also from post-impression, from impressionism and post-impressionism. After a while, Tanner has to leave America. It doesn't have to, but <laughs> decides that ultimately uh, France is a more hospitable place for him to live uh, because of racism. And so he has a long celebrated career in France and begins to absorb all that, that French advanced art, right? And yet doesn't give up uh, his commitment to visualizing these scenes in this, again, historically kind of realistic way, which is a bit of an oxymoron, but here it is. So this, of course, recognizes, you can recognize it as a flight into Egypt, which is a very uh, important scene for Tanner. Um, also taken from Matthew 2, right? And Tanner is fond of, of the way he's going to begin to try to integrate these things is to pick scenes that happen at kind of liminal times of day for one thing. So he'll put these things, he paint them at night, right? They'll have artificial light in them. Things that will allow him to use to the strange new color palettes that are being created by modern artists. Uh, in France at the time, and yet to merge them with his interests, right? So it's, a, it's an amazing leap of creativity. Um, again, one that, that uh, for better or for worse, uh, gets played out in the work. Um, so he'll have scenes like this, right? So I don't know, when the last time you saw a, pay, you know, a, a film of, about Jesus, where Jesus was lurking around at night, sort of in an alleyway, uh, with creepy branches uh, coming overhead. Um, this is Christ to the Canaanite woman and her daughter from 1908. So between 1898 and 1908, he's traveled to the Holy Land three different times and also spending a good deal of time in North Africa. And again, all of that is a way for him to get closer and closer to these subjects um, or to the, or the actual places where these subjects were uh, occurred, right? 
so that he can observe them, in a sense, play out uh, the, the drama of, op of the realist observation, right, with the spiritual narrative, with the, uh, the biblical narrative. But you get these uh, scenes that feel um, actually, you know, kind of starkly cinematic for us now, right? I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of anticipation of, um, of, kind of theatrical staging of these. And of course, we know photography's been around for, you know, quite a while by the time he's doing these things. So there's no, no doubt some influence. Began also to paint small studies. This is just an example of the kind of work he would do when he was in, he was spending a great deal of time in Morocco, right? Because it allowed him to paint a kind of you know, vision of the Far East and to merge that with his, um, his concerns about, um, again, painting these, these stories. Sorry, this is getting really bleached out on the, the screen. It's quite a beautiful painting. Uh, uh, but you can see him experimenting with some rather uh, almost alarming color harmonies in these things. The TV is accentuating them a bit, but um, they are still quite intense, quite bold. And he would begin to sort of blend these things. So, uh, you know, the title of this, of course, is a gateway in Tangier. Um, this is uh, the Palace of Justice in Tangier, also a flight or, or into Egypt. Right? So the observation and the narrative, again, also often is a strange way of coexisting in these scenes. And you can see, um, as he's working through this, that 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 attention to the materiality even of the paint, right, and this is a very small painting blown up here, is becoming richer, more intense, uh, more dramatic. By the way, here's another attempt to paint an angel. Give me a weirder uh, version of the uh, angels appearing before the shepherds, and I'll give you a dollar. Uh, <laughs> I mean, first of all, like, so I'm going to set this scene, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint this scene, and I'm going to paint it, you know, like it happened, and I'm going to put us in the sky. So apparently we are, right, these are the shepherds down here, if you can't see. Down in the lower right-hand corner. And this is a landscape moving up, you know, apparently toward a city up here. And these are the angels in this case, right? These kinds of strange apparitions that are moving up here. So again, these, these, uh, these uh, so solutions become more and more novel and even extreme uh, as he goes. And again, what's interesting for us, and this is the painting that's at the LA County, I won't, uh, I just threw it in here because you could go see it in person. It looks better than on the TV screen, so that's cool. Um, Quite a departure from his earlier Mary. This is Mary and the and the child, um, and this one is from eighteen from nineteen twenty two. After the first world war, right conclusion. So the uh, the only way we know the child is in this, by the way, do you see the halo? <laughs> so, so. He does this on occasion, to, uh, again, which it seems uh, as ill-fitting as some of the halos in Renaissance paintings, um, because of the, uh, uh, you know, its introduction to a space which has a kind of interior psychological drama um, that really is carrying 
carrying the day. One of my favorite uh, flights into Egypt, right? where then he's blended uh, the use of the nocturnal scene, where, which it provides him the chance to use these low-key blue uh, uh, color palettes, along with the artificial light uh, of the lantern, right? Uh, the, Mor the street scenes you would have seen in Morocco and Tangier. Right? Um, the realism blended with the narrative in a way that, that uh, again, stretches uh, even our belief of the scene or our, our uh, connection to it psychologically. And of course, this painting, which I began with, uh, which occurs in the, in the 20s here. This is uh, uh, the Three Wise Men from 1925. I'll come back to this a little bit later. But you'll notice that, um, again, what's striking about this scene uh, is that much like the flights into Egypt, right, and the other scenes, Tanner has chosen scenes that are intentionally transitory, right? Um, the convention for most of our history has been to show the wise men at the moment of epiphany, right, or at the moment of laying eyes on Christ. Where Tanner generally is going to hold those final moments kind of in abeyance, especially as the work goes on later. These figures are sort of wandering through the, la the landscape in these um, terribly moody scenes. I don't know how you see any stars with this cloud cover. Uh, first of all, that's, that's going to be a challenge. Um, but these, uh, these figures that are moving on a journey again, which never quite resolves itself. And I actually, you know, have, a, again, a great deal of affection for Tanner for undertaking and trying to maintain this project um, in a time that didn't necessarily have a great deal of space for it artistically. Right? Um, and the fact that um, along the way he, he just, I think, uncovered a whole bunch of ways um, uh, to try to maintain the relationship to representing this theme because these things were fundamental. But the, uh, you can see that, that kind of, again, process of the strain of doing that leads to these, these paintings with this kind of uh, um, extraordinary, unique mystery. Um, they're not, in the end, uh, illustrations of the biblical text, um, so much as they are kind of emotional meditations on them and on often open-ended travel. By the time we see him in the, uh, in the 1930s, we get paintings like this, which uh, are painted with oil and tempera on board and have so, uh, again, are so thoroughly exploring the material reality of the, of the space in this case of this, uh, so this is the Good Shepherd. You know those things are on the bottom right very often, right? It's the Good Shepherd um, in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, right? So thoroughly kind of uh, conflating the spaces he has been able to see and to, obs to observe directly and paint directly um, with the richness, uh, of course, using the rock, the rocks as an opportunity to build up these incredibly rich textures. And, and yet, you know, the, the, uh, the scene at this point feels um, 
again, almost like an afterthought. Right? The, the drama of the surface and the space is so intense. He actually left off painting religious scenes after this, um, this period and began to paint some war scenes um, in the, lead up, the last few years of his life before World War II. He died, of course, just before its advent. So I think in Tanner you see, again, the, the drama of, a, um, of an artist who has these a commitment to these, this subject matter and is attempting to materialize it, right, in a whole set of conditions, uh, painterly conditions, emerging in the 20th century that were um, uh, in some ways at moments helpful, at, at moments inimical to it, right? Um, the, the back and forth of that is really a, a kind of exciting piece of, or exciting um, set of themes in the work. Uh, and again, I don't know that um, ultimately he arrived at all the places we might have wanted him to, right? or that the project was entirely successful uh, as it played out. But in his work, the drama of someone attempting that thing, right, attempting to reconcile those, what, as a painter, I love, and what probably relates uh, strongly into our, our theme again. Um, that often the ways we evaluate artists are about, you know, even masterpiece to masterpiece, right? uh, which can be harmful in some ways. Uh, instead of thinking about uh, ultimately what the project is and the, the works that that come from, from the development of that. Um, again, uh, I'm using that train of thought, so <laughs> I'll stop. I'll digress. The, uh, what's that? Something left in the screen. Now I want to think about an artist who came at it from a di the different, or the reverse angle, in a sense, which is um, Jay DeFeo. So when Tanner was uh, passed away, Jay DeFeo was only eight years old, as I said, the artists are, are, don't overlap by much. But I thought it might be interesting for us to think about an artist who approached this deep material um, versus, uh, again, I think, spiritual or revelatory um, contrast in painting from the other side. Uh, DeFeo really had a love of material. Of course, in the 1950s, we have the rise of abstract expressionism. And the, uh, and she emerges out of that um, period. She's working on the West Coast primarily. Has a deep love of, of paint. And this is an early work by hers. Um, these are works tend to be very difficult to photograph. Uh, 
because of the surface, what you're seeing here is a, a 40 by 40 inch canvas painted in black and white. Uh, primarily with subtle warm and cool shifts. And she began to paint these very intense kind of uh, monochrome abstractions, working through, and this is a photograph of her in the studio, um, imagery that often had a kind of uh, direct, almost primal kind of center to it, um, or a, a powerful sweeping movement. This is a painting called e uh, Easter Lily from 1956. And for DeFeo, then, the, the beginning point, the starting point, is the materiality. And as she moves in toward um, this, what I'm fascinated by is the way that uh, the material in the paint consistently gives way to this other reality, right? This is probably most easily seen in uh, the large work that she spent most of her time on, and which is most clearly associated with her, which is uh, the rose. She uh, painted this from 1958 to 1966. Um, worked on it for eight years, unrelentingly. Uh, and she painted it in this small apartment uh, that she had, the Fillmore, Fillmore Street Studio in the Bay Area. And she said, uh, interestingly enough, when she began the painting, all she was intuiting, right, was something with a center. But what's fascinating about this image? Those of you who got it straight on over here. It's off-center. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? Yeah, it's off-center. Yeah, it's slightly to the right. She had painted, on, painted this, on this thing for, I think, the better part of two years before she became so frustrated with it being off-center. Um, and it went through various phases. This was the initial phase. And so she had to take it off of this canvas and put it onto a larger one. Um, meaning, take the canvas off the stretcher bar and put it down. It took 16 people an entire day to do it, uh, to re-glue it onto a larger surface so that the image could get recentered and she could continue. This gives you some idea, again, th this is a bit of a distortion, this gives you some idea of the scale of the painting. Um, she, her, her loft then had 14 foot high ceilings, so it's about a 12 foot high painting. And she uh, continued to, to work at this thing and build it up, and again, uh, at any number of points along the way, it was, it was in a sense, a finished work, a thing that that she had arrived at completely. Um, and yet she continued to press on this thing um, until uh, all kinds of strange life situations took over and she could no longer do that. This was um, a first iteration of the painting. This was a second iteration of the painting, what she called the Baroque phase. <laughs> because all of the straight lines gave way to this sort of sensuous curvaceousness. The painting initially had the title The Death Rose. Which, talk about a, a you know, pretentious title. That's a, that's a heavy one. Um, and eventually ended up with the title The Rose. Um, that's her down there, by the way, in a kind of uh, blur working on the thing. 
The painting eventually ended up with this kind of extraordinary uh, blending of the original geometric form with this organic form, where it almost feels, it feels very uh, uh, much like some kind of, you know, these things are acanthus leaves or something falling off of a, a, a ruined uh, relief from the side of a te temple or something, right? I mean, the um, obvious feeling of, of re association with religious icons is deep. In a sense, uh, that there's there's a kind of inner light that continues to exert pressure on the painting, despite the uh, uh, its incredible materiality. The thing is about ten, like ten inches thick in some places, 